Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of being a church and for your Holy Spirit that calls us together. We pray your blessing upon us as we study Paul's letter to the Romans, that you would teach us something new, not only about you and your purpose here on this earth through your son, Jesus Christ, but also about us and about what it means to be Jesus's disciples. We love you and we say thank you for this day and for this gift in Jesus's name. Amen. All right, I'm going to share my screen. Now, before I actually read the text, I don't want to get lost in introductory material, but I do want to say just a few things about this letter. It's one of the letters that Paul wrote. Uh, It's 16 chapters. And even though Paul did not divide this up into chapters when he sat down to pen this letter, um, it does kind of divide up pretty neatly into four different segments. Chapters one through four follow a certain line of thought, five through eight in a similar way do nine through 11. That's a little world of its own by the time we get there. And then 12 through 16 all seem to go together. One of the things that you'll note when we study this letter is that Paul quotes the Hebrew scriptures a lot. And he quotes in the Greek version, which is the Septuagint. But Paul is doing that because what he is trying to accomplish in this letter is to articulate how God's purpose for the world has culminated uh, in Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, which really for Paul, I love the translation, true king of the world. This is about who really is the true king of this world. Paul wrote this letter in the winter of either 57 or 58. The context is he's going to take a collection to Jerusalem soon. He also hopes to visit Spain, and he wants to kind of pass through Rome and stop there to encourage the Christians on his way and maybe also to collect a little bit of money. Uh, Paul has never visited Rome before. He's never met these Christians in person, and these are not communities that Paul himself founded. Um, but Paul is pretty famous. He has a good reputation and he has tried to visit them before. And he writes this letter to say, okay, guys, gals, I'm really coming this time. I look forward to getting to know you, but let me kind of send this letter ahead of time to lay out my theology and to address some of the practical issues y'all are talking about. Um, in terms of the themes of the letter, it's really about God's revelation of who God is Uh, in Jesus, the Messiah. This is the center of the gospel. Um, Now, Paul's letter to the Romans has really become a centerpiece of Protestant evangelical theology for very good reason, post-Reformation. You know, if you grew up like me, like in young life, you might have been walked down the Romans road, which is kind of these are the five things in order to get saved. And as helpful as those paradigms can be, It's not really the thesis of Paul's letter. Certainly, Paul's letter has lots of implications for eternal life. He writes about that. But this is really about how God has acted in Jesus so that the Gentiles might join in and glorify God um, and how God has fulfilled God's covenant, God's promise to Abraham in and through Jesus, the Messiah. And there's implications about Gentiles and the people of Israel, essentially Paul's argument is that what God did for Israel, God really did through Israel for the benefit of the entire world. 
Now, you and I take for granted that Gentiles are kind of part of God's saving action because most of us are Gentiles. I say that because I know one here uh, was raised Jewish and converted as an adult. But for those of us who were Gentiles, right, we take for granted that the covenant and the promise is for us. But Paul's community couldn't take that for granted. And so he's really trying to articulate how what God did for the people of Israel was never a private game, but rather God did that through them in order to benefit, bless, and save the entire world, which includes Jew and Gentile alike. And so before we actually dive into the letter, I'm going to pause there just to see if there's any preliminary questions about this letter or why Paul wrote it. Romans chapter one, and I'm going to read through verse 16 to start. As I read this, I'm going to ask you to pay attention to what questions you have and what are the places where we might want to have some conversation. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. For God whom I serve with my spirit by announcing the gospel of his son is my witness that without ceasing I remember you always in my prayers asking that by God's will, I may somehow at last succeed in coming to you. For I'm longing to see you so that I may share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, or rather so that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as I have among the rest of the Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, hence my eagerness to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just offer a few intro notes, and then we'll dive right into our conversation. So how does Paul start this? He says, Paul, a servant. The Greek word is doulos. It's better translated slave. And so Paul writes this letter introducing himself as a slave of Christ, now, this would have been powerful because the church at Rome would have had slaves as part of their membership. And so imagine hearing this letter read aloud in this community where both slave and free worship together and hearing Paul call himself a slave in order to share a gospel 
about the true king of the world who took the form of a slave. Now, everything Paul says, especially in the first seven verses, is a 45-minute lecture all of itself. But I just want you to kind of look at how what Paul does here is jam-packed with meaning, and every word he says is very intentional. He says he's called to be an apostle. That means set apart, one who's sent uh, in order to announce a message. He's set apart to... um, announce the gospel. That word euangelion means good news. Um, And so the idea of the good news is that something has happened, something in history that has truly changed the course of the world. Um, And as a result, the future looks different. So if you go have an operation and that operation is successful and the surgeon comes to offer you the good news that everything worked, your life looks different now because the surgeon did his job, the surgery was successful, you're healthy. That's kind of what the gospel is. Something has happened. And as a result of this real thing happening, the future looks different. And even though this is about the future, Paul says in verse two, that this is tied to the past. This good news was promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, what you and I know as the Old Testament. And it's about this person who was descended from David, according to the flesh. In other words, anyone who's read the Old Testament carefully knows that the people of Judah, the remnant out of them, the ruler is to arise. So it's very important to descend from (laughs) David. Um, And he was declared to be son of God uh, with power, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead. Now, one thing about this word son of God Now, in reading Paul's epistles, I do believe that Paul understands Jesus to be not just Messiah and King, but something akin to what you and I understand as divine, God himself. That's very clear in reading Paul. But it's also important to note that whenever Paul uses the phrase son of God, we don't have a full-blown Nicene Trinitarian theology developed. He's not necessarily speaking only of Jesus's divinity. Um, I'm not ruling that out, but it's important to name that Paul is trying to bring the Old Testament scriptures to bear on the present moment, and that in the Old Testament, Israel is declared to be God's son. And so, for instance, Psalm 2, speaking of Israel, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But anyone who has read the Old Testament knows that Israel as a whole was not an obedient son. They were a disobedient son. They broke the covenant. They broke the laws. And so here Paul is setting up a story about God's true son who will be obedient and how that's going to be tied to what Paul calls the righteousness of God being revealed or the way N.T. Wright translates that is the covenant justice of God being revealed. This is about how God is going to fulfill God's covenant because the people of Israel and humanity as a whole, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, you know, track records, not very good for humanity. So this is the obedient son who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And in verse five, Paul says that we are to get in on this obedience, right? through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, including yourselves. Now, again, you and I take for granted the idea that 
man, woman, slave, free, Gentile, Jew is included in the covenant promise. But Paul is really kind of breaking new ground here. And Paul is really trying to articulate the universality of the gospel and who the promise is for. And so after all this preliminary, you know, identification of himself and teeing up what this letter is going to be about, Paul then switches in verse seven to get a little more personal, less heady, less theological. And he basically says to the Christians in Rome, I'm really thankful for you. Your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. And whenever Paul uses the word faith, he's not talking about a religious experience. He's not talking about a fully developed school of doctrine that they've all agreed to. He's really talking about an allegiance, a deep allegiance to Jesus as king. And in the background of that allegiance would be the allegiance that Caesar, right, king of Rome, wants from his subjects, the allegiance the pagan gods would want from those who would worship them. This is really a question of where is our allegiance? To what king do we bow? Do we bow to the God Caesar? Do we bow to the God of money? Do we bow to the God of ethnic purity, which some Jews might've been tempted to bow to? And Paul says, no, you bow to King Jesus. That's what faith is all about. And verse 10, he says, I am praying that I might at last succeed in coming to you. Um, Paul has tried before. Um, anyone who's read Acts of the Apostles, kind of those ship narratives at the end, you know, Paul would set on a journey, he'd get shipwrecked, he'd get stoned, he'd get imprisoned. This isn't about just booking a flight and sending an email, right? So Paul has really tried to visit Rome before, um, but, you know, back in the day, uh, plans got thwarted a lot more often than they do now. And so Paul's basically saying, I've tried, you probably heard that I'm coming, you might think I'm a little flaky, but this time it's going to happen, people. I'm on my way to Rome. And when that happens, I'm hoping that maybe I could share some sort of spiritual gift with you. And then finally, friends, verses 16 through 17, most scholars would say this is the thesis statement of the whole letter, that these two verses are what Paul will unpack for the next 16 chapters. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would anyone be ashamed? Well, it's about how the true king of the world took the form of a slave, died on the cross, and is somehow reconciling all these enemies to himself and in through that act. You know, Jesus himself knew that there was something shameful about the cross. In Luke 9, he said, Who has, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, uh, the son of man will also be ashamed when he comes uh, in glory with his holy angels. And of course, the prophet Isaiah said, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so this idea of not being ashamed of Jesus, not being ashamed of the gospel, this is not a new theme, but a theme that Jesus introduced, building off of Isaiah, and that he is now picking up to say, I'm not ashamed. Uh, in fact, not only am I not ashamed, but what I'm going to write to you about is the power of God for salvation. And that word power is important for uh, Paul, because power means you know, something's going to happen. Um, power means what it means. Um, the Greek word is dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite, right? Something's about to blow open if you believe in this gospel. And he says it's a power for salvation. In the Old Testament, salvation is really about rescue. And uh, a lot of times God would save God's people from worldly enemies. 
Um, you know, he'd save them from the Philistines, for instance, in the book of Judges, or he'd save them from a plague after the people repented. But what Paul's going to do in this letter is kind of throw open the question of what do we need rescue from? And the answer is going to be sin and death. That's ultimately what we need to be rescued from. And then Paul says, those who have faith kind of get in on the power of this salvation. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. N.T. Wright translates that to the Jew first and also equally to the Greek. Um, and really what Paul is doing here is walking a fine line because he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows that the promise came to Israel first. I mean, so Paul's Jewish. He knows how the story goes, right? To the Jew first, but to the Jew and also equally to the Greek. Paul's trying to walk this tension here to say God chose Israel, but what God chose Israel for was to be a vessel for the whole world. And then verse 17, he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now we can have lots of conversation about this word righteousness. It has a lot of meanings. The Greek word is diakosune. So Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom. It's the same word. And in one instance, it can mean the inner goodness, right? Diakosune has an inner quality, but it also has an external quality of covenant justice, right? For God to be righteous means that God keeps God's word. God keeps God's covenant. God does not break promises. And essentially what Paul's teeing up is, you know, that promise God made a long time ago to Abraham, that promise that the whole world would be set to rights and in through your descendants. Well, guess what? God has been faithful to that covenant. And now we get to get in on that. It's good news and it's powerful and it's for everybody. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and stop there. That's the first 16 verses and let's go ahead and see what y'all are thinking. All right, now we're gonna go to the second half of Romans. Now I've done Bible studies on Romans uh, many times throughout my career and I've never escaped uh, getting through verse 26 and 27 without it leading to uh, a lot of uh, heated um, conversations. So I've just decided to like preemptively offer a pastoral note on those verses at the end of this teaching. And then if there's energy there and y'all want to talk about it, we're, we're welcome to, but um, we don't necessarily have to. Um, okay. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. 
And in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And thus, on that cheery note, we end Romans 1. Uh, okay, a few quick notes, uh, and then we'll dive into conversation. First, Paul is talking about the wrath of God being revealed. Um, and we can talk about that word wrath, but, you know, really wrath, it means anger. Uh, but in the Bible, when we speak about God's wrath, it's important to note that wrath is always an expression of God's love, that God is angry at how the good creation has been harmed. Uh, we're not here talking about sinful human anger, right? Whenever you and I are angry, even if we are angry about true injustice, our anger is always tainted with sin and selfishness and pride. You and I don't actually know what a holy wrath is like. Um, but whatever God's wrath is, God's anger, it's a holy anger. It's a pure anger. And it is an anger that is tied to God's love. Uh, and you and I can think about, you know, we, we can find some uh, metaphor in our human experience that can probably give us access to this, but um, just one thing to name about wrath. Um, and then Paul starts talking about how what can be known about God is plain to people and how from the creation of the world, how God's eternal power and nature, even though they are invisible, have been able to be understood through the things he has made. And so speaking of the Gentiles, for instance, they might not have the law. They might not have the experience of being rescued from slavery, but Paul is kind of setting it up to where no one has an excuse to be alive, to experience the miracle of our existence, to see the sun rise, to see rain fall from heaven, Paul says. This bears witness to a creator who has put us here for whom we are accountable to our life. Um, and, um, so here in verse 21, Paul says that they don't have an excuse, right? The Gentiles don't have an excuse. Now, later on, Paul will start talking about how, uh, the Jews also don't have an excuse, um, and how they became futile in their thinking and how their senseless mind was darkened. One of the things just to note about Pauline thought is that the mind is very important, right? And so in the same way that he speaks here of, the senseless mind being darkened in Romans 12, he'll say, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The mind is very important for Paul. The spirit doesn't just work on the human heart. It works on our mind and our transformation comes through engaging our mind. Who is God? What has God done? This is part of Paul's intention. Uh, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. That should you bring you back to the Garden of Eden, right? Why did Adam and Eve take the fruit? Well, they wanted to be wise. What happened? They became fools. They rebelled against God. 
And so Paul is kind of tying the human story all the way back to Genesis chapter three. And this will be very important in Romans five, for instance, when Jesus is portrayed as somewhat of a new Adam. Um, Verse 24, um, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. A few things to note about verse 24 and 25. This is an allusion, very subtle, to the golden calf of Exodus Exodus 32, right? Where uh, Moses climbs the mountain and he comes down with the Ten Commandments only to find that the people are worshiping a golden calf and engaged in revelry. And although it doesn't flat out say it in the text in Exodus, kind of the implication in the tradition was that there was some something of an orgy happening amongst Israel at that golden calf, that what Moses encountered was um, a display of sexual behavior that was not holy or good as they worshiped this golden calf. And so that's an allusion, I think, to the Exodus 32 story. And Paul is trying to kind of hook everything in to this tradition that we have in the Torah. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. You'll notice that Paul uses that phrase three times in Romans 1, how God gave them up to their sin. God gave them up to their lust. God gave them up to their degrading passions. The Greek word there is paradidomai. The reason that's important is because it's the same word Paul will use elsewhere about Jesus gave himself up to the cross. God gave his son up to death, right? So it's very subtle. And if you don't study the Greek text, you're not going to catch it. Paul is setting up the problem here about how we've been given up. We've been given up to our sin. We've been given up to our selfishness. God handed us over to sin and death, but it's not the last giving up. The last giving up will be the giving up of his son, Jesus Christ, or the self-giving of the son to die on a cross. And so in the same way that the problem is framed as a giving up, so will the solution be framed as a giving up. And in that will be revealed the righteousness or covenant justice of God. Um, I'm going to talk about verses 26 and 27 at the end. I'm just going to kind of bracket that for a moment. Um, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. In fact, I believe that uh, the Greek actually says unfit. It's a little bit of a pun. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to an unfit mind. And then in verse 29, Paul has this long list of sins, every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice. Um, And it's important to note that what these words are meant to modify uh, are not necessarily verse 26 and 27, but we go all the way back up to verse 18. We're talking about anyone who, through ungodliness and wickedness, suppresses the truth. The truth about what? the truth about who God is and what God has done in and through Jesus. And if we read Paul carefully enough, none of us are going to wiggle out of that list. Um, It's also important to note about this long list of sins, because it sounds really dark. It sounds, oh, there's Paul being judgmental again. There's Paul being a big old jerk. That's not actually what's happening. Um, A few things 
to note about this. This is really Paul's riff on a similar Jewish list that would have circulated in the day. And there were similar pagan lists. Remember, there were great pagan philosophers like Seneca and Cicero who actually wrote about virtue. And even pagans had lists like this. And they said that if you live your life, you know, if this is what your life looks like, it is the way that leads to death. And so part of what Paul is saying is that we've all been given up to death. But of course, that's not going to be the final story. Um, And then let me just offer a, a quick word about verses 26 and 27. I think in, you know, today's context, you can't read Romans 1 without just saying a word or two about that, because I know that um, many of us have family members who are gay, or we all have some friends and acquaintances who are gay. We belong to a church that really seeks to offer grace and connection to all people. And of course, we're mindful of how um, uh, gay Christians have been hurt and shamed by the words of Romans 1. And so I think what I really want to name about that, I think there's many mistakes that we can make. I think one mistake is we don't want to turn Romans into a moral code book. Um, And the reason I say that is because the thesis is really about the covenant justice of God being revealed. And so if we're kind of on that side that's tempted to use Roman one to make judgments about other people's behavior, we definitely need to give some consideration to Romans two, right? Especially verse one, uh, which we'll get to next week. And then of course, Romans 14, where Paul really does write about ethics, but Uh, the issue there is meat offered to idols. He really links the morality of an action to the faith uh, behind it. You know, he'll say anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So I'm not really trying to wiggle out of these two verses, but just to say Romans 1 is not a moral code book and that the whole point of this chapter is to implicate all of us together uh, in this position of needing saving. Um, And then the other thing I would just say is that um, you know, Paul was a, a first century Jew and, uh, the other error would be to kind of like try to twist him and to create him into like a 21st century progressive individualistic American. And Paul wasn't that. Uh, and so if, if y'all want to talk about these two verses, we can, but, uh, I think what I would offer, um, is that, um, they're not central, to the overall point Paul is making in the letter, uh, and that the main thesis is ultimately about how God has acted and how all of us are in need of rescue. So I'll just go ahead and pause there. And if y'all are interested and and if y'all need to talk more about that, we can, but if not, we'll talk about other aspects of Romans 1.